Before I start the show today, a quick note of thanks goes out to Jonathan Pirelli. Jonathan is the founder of StartupLand.tv, and he approved the use of the audio snippets you'll hear throughout this show. You'll learn more about Startup Land later in the podcast, but for now, if you want to learn more, you can head on over to StartupLand.tv. Thanks again, Jonathan. And now, on with the show. Early on in my career, I just kind of did whatever was in front of me. My viewpoint of work had always kind of been from my my parents and family members that it was just something you had to do, but it wasn't necessarily something that you should be fulfilled by. Just like be thankful for your paycheck. And so that was kind of the mentality that I entered the workforce with originally. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the brand new You Show, the podcast dedicated to helping you build your personal brand. We meet here each week to learn how building your brand can help you grow your influence, amplify your online reputation, and ultimately impact your career. I'm your host, Ryan Roten, and today's guest embodies all of the things that we've discussed since the start of this podcast. You see, becoming a brand new version of yourself takes courage, perseverance, and a lot of hard work on your part. This is especially true if the new version you see for yourself is to become an entrepreneur. In the news, we always hear about the wildly successful entrepreneurs and all the money that they've just made because they sold their business or their product is now the hottest thing on the planet. When this happens, the news reports almost always make us think that the entrepreneur is an overnight success. We have short attention spans and we see things as overnight successes and it's really easy to look at insert the blank startup and just assume there were no failures along the way and that's just false. We all know, or at least I hope the listeners to this podcast know, that there's no such thing as an overnight success. In the words of Dwayne Johnson, also known as The Rock, it takes blood, sweat, and respect. The first two you give, the last one you earn. Yet many people still think to themselves when they see these news clips about the entrepreneur who's made it big, man, they are lucky. Or maybe even, I could have done that. But the truth is, we didn't. We didn't because unlike the entrepreneur whose name is now all over the news, we decided not to take action. And taking action is one of the core tenets of becoming a brand new you. Why do you choose not to take action? Simply put, action requires change, and change is hard, especially if that change involves you taking the entrepreneurial path. Our guest today agrees. Because I don't care what industry and what format your entrepreneur journey takes, It's hard. Lisa Mitchell is an entrepreneur and a founder of PowerBodyLanguage.com. Nelson Mandela once said, Don't judge me by my successes. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. Lisa has fallen down more than once, but she still got back up again and again and somehow managed to continue moving forward. And while today Lisa is a certified body language trainer and nonverbal skills expert, this wasn't always the case. In fact, Lisa's story is very typical for many entrepreneurs, and her story offers so many great lessons for us all. These lessons can be applied in our quest to becoming a brand new version of ourselves, but as I've already said, they don't come easy or without struggle. On today's show, we're going to hear all about the real struggles of an entrepreneur and the toll it can take on you physically and mentally. But before we get there, You know I had to ask Lisa where she would vacation if she could choose only one place for the rest of her vacation days. Belize. Wow, no hesitation. Belize. No, the mental picture from my first and only visit there is is burned in a, a very vivid memory, and I would love to get to recreate that. Okay, awesome. Do you, are you a scuba diver? I am not a scuba diver, but I do enjoy snorkeling, and they have 
just the most beautiful reefs that all you need to do is, is put your face in the water and it's it's a total transformation of your world. My wife has been bugging me for years. She would love to go to Belize, but she and she wants to do the whole snorkeling thing too. So you are you already have one person, uh, at least in my family, that's very jealous of you. Yes, I would I would definitely second your wife's vote on that vacation. <laughs> you should definitely take her. <laughs> Lisa learned her craft at the Science of People, a human behavior research lab based in Portland, Oregon. Now at Power Body Language, Lisa helps entrepreneurs master their first impression, increase their influence, and communicate with confidence through the power of body language and nonverbal skills. And yes, I did say nonverbal skills, but if you're thinking this means today's podcast will be 40 minutes of silence, well, you'd be wrong, I think. Right, Lisa? Uh, right. I can kind of I can kind of see why they would think that. But the great the great thing about what I do is that it's really kind of easy to to play along with and to get a, a good picture in your head of exactly what these techniques are and how you can master them and utilize them. I agree with Lisa. It is easy to play along with and get a good picture in your head of these nonverbal techniques. And we'll go through one very important nonverbal form of communication a little later. But like so many of us, Lisa didn't set out on a path to become a body language and nonverbal skills expert. In fact, her career started just like many of us did in a corporate position. My first corporate position was actually as a residential billing agent uh, for GTE. What tasks did you do as a residential billing agent? It was essentially a call center. And being that we dealt with bills and what people owed us, most of the customers calling in were not excited to be speaking with us. <laughs> so we got the opportunity to serve them and handle their problems and then also had the additional opportunity to try to sell them something after they called in angry with us. <laughs> so it's a very challenging dynamic to work with them. Did you notice Lisa said she had the opportunity to serve her customers? She didn't say deal with them. This takes a completely different mindset to serve someone versus dealing with them. And it's this mindset that serves her well throughout her career journey. Because she was working in a call center type environment, I wondered if this provided her with any skills she would later use in the areas of sales or the ability to be able to read people a little bit better, if you will. I got really good at acknowledging um, people's concerns. So I think my empathy level really grew as a result of that position. But I was, uh, yeah, I'm horrible at kind of one-off sales. Like, <laughs> not, not a gift that I have. Lisa recognized early on that this type of sales position was not in her wheelhouse, if you will. But I wondered if this position and her acknowledgement of this non-skill gave her any kind of insight into how she should be contributing to the world as a whole. That was really kind of part of it. I think I just kind of did whatever was in front of me early on in my career and didn't really challenge myself to, to look for the things that made me really happy or fulfilled. I didn't really know that was an option with a job. Like many of us, Lisa wasn't thinking about starting a business or finding work that matters when she started working in the real world. Instead, she approached her corporate career using the same old school formula that many of us do. Lisa explains. Uh, my viewpoint of work had always kind of been from my, my parents and family members that it was just something you had to do but it wasn't necessarily something that you should be fulfilled by. Just like be thankful for your paycheck. And so that was kind of the mentality that I entered the workforce with originally. Originally. According to the internet, originally means from or in the beginning at first. This implies that at some point there was a change. 
which we've referred to many times on this podcast as an inciting incident. So I asked Lisa, what changed for her? I think there were a couple of factors that contributed to my, I guess, curiosity and to entrepreneurship. But part of that was I, I varied from the traditional path a little bit in that I didn't go to college directly after high school and then progress to a job from there. I actually started in a large corporation that then allowed me to go to college. They paid for my tuition and, and most of my expenses and allowed me to get my undergraduate degrees and then go on and get my master's degree um, with very little out-of-pocket expense. And through that process, uh, especially through pursuing my master's degree um, in, in management, I got really, really interested in entrepreneurship and kind of the compelling feeling I had that I would I, I needed to build something of my own really kind of started to take root um, as I grew more confident through my education and through increased work experience and I just felt like I was kind of building a skill set that would lead me to something of my own so it, it wasn't like an overnight decision I think it was kind of a an accumulation of, of skills and education and just getting a little more curious about creating my own destiny as we learn we become more confident. And as we learn more, we begin to change our mindset. Through the process of education, Lisa was beginning to see, maybe for the first time, that her destiny waited for her outside the four walls of the corporate environment. So I asked her, what was her first entrepreneurial venture? The first official entrepreneurial adventure for me was um, executing a business plan I actually had created during one of my master's classes and opening uh, a coffee house in my in my local neighborhood. Wow, brick and mortar business. Brick and mortar. Wow. Talk about what must have been one of the most difficult businesses to get started in. And because the restaurant business can be so demanding, I mean, people need their coffee after all, I wanted to know if Lisa leaned into the business as Danny Flood and I discussed in show 52, or if she dropped everything and just dove right in. Oh no, I would never I, I couldn't I couldn't cut ties with the mothership and, and have the courage to go out on my own just yet. And financially it wasn't a responsible approach to take either with my family situation. So um the the plan was I kind of built this exit strategy um where I I built out my business and and laid all the framework. And at the time I was commuting over two hours a day in total, a hundred and a hundred and eighty miles a day uh was my commute. So my plan was, is right before I opened my business, I was turning in my resignation. But I was going to write out the corporate benefits as long as I could. Okay, she's going to lean in to get the foundation in place first, then give her company the obligatory two weeks notice. And that's when the first curveball came Lisa's way. So we get like two weeks out from opening and I'm ready to you know, make my transition and stop making that commute. And I turn in my resignation and they say, hey, we're going to give you a promotion and you can work remotely. So it made, it made, it made the uh, decision to leave a lot more difficult. So me being type A, ambitious, I can do it all, decide, you know what? It won't be that hard. I'm going to keep my corporate job, say yes to this promotion. And then I'm also going to run a business because why not? Plus, I had a one-year-old infant daughter at home as well that needed some attention. What could, what could possibly go wrong? Let's recap. Lisa, the mother of a one-year-old daughter, has decided to take a promotion at her day job and run a brick-and-mortar business by way of a coffee house on the side. I wondered, 
what does this make her day look like? Yeah, I, it's, it was a 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. workday, essentially, um, that, there, that there was some, some sort of need going on constantly. Holy cow, and I thought my day was busy. How many of you listening think you could handle all of the responsibilities and long hours that come with holding down really what is essentially two full-time jobs? This was difficult for me to comprehend, yet so many entrepreneurs do this exact same thing. This is the non-glamorous part of entrepreneurship that we generally don't hear anything about. This is my first foray into kind of the entrepreneurial world, but until you actually take that plunge, you don't realize whatever you assume, it's 10 times tougher than that. The hustle, the drive, the long hours, and the balancing act of keeping it all together. I asked Lisa, how was she able to do it all during this period? And she explained. Oh, I didn't. I, uh, I about sunk myself, to be honest with you. Um, I had a hard time admitting that I was overwhelmed and um, just decided that sleep was optional and, <laughs> you know, drug, drug other people into the business that really weren't excited to be part of it just because I could no longer, you know, manage everything on my own. Um, so I made some other people's lives uncomfortable, to be honest, um, by kind of bringing them into a situation that they didn't have the passion about that I did. But you felt you had to because you needed to keep everything. You had, you had to keep all the balls in the air, right? Right, right. Yeah, I, I really honestly, d during a, a portion of that time, was working out of sheer desperation. Sheer desperation. I, I can only imagine what it would be like trying to keep all of those balls up in the air. I paused her story here for just a minute because I wanted to know what lessons from this period of her journey would she take with her into her next entrepreneurial journey? And yes, despite the desperation, there would be a next venture. The primary lesson I learned from that is to recognize your limits, to really assess what, what do you want your life to feel like if everything goes right. So if everything works out perfectly and you get all the yeses, and you get all the support, and you get every green light to enter the marketplace, are you going to be satisfied with what your life looks like? Going back to the coffee shop, you can probably sense that Lisa has started to realize that the business wasn't going to work out. Knowing that she had poured her blood, sweat, and tears into this business, I asked her how difficult was that final decision when she decided to close the coffee shop? Yeah, it was, it was probably... It was probably one of the worst and best feelings. And it was the worst feeling because not only did we have our initial shop, but we actually had ended up with four locations in total. And so we had a staff, you know, that really was more like family. I had a, a small, relatively small staff spread over these locations, but a lot of them had been there with me since before the doors opened. Um, so we had really kind of a family atmosphere, you know, they were with me and, and my daughter and my family all the time. And, um, these were people that I really, truly loved and cared about and felt like they had invested and trusted me as much as I had invested and trusted in them. And to have to tell them that essentially I had failed and that despite their best efforts and their sacrifices that, you know, the family the family was splitting up, you know, the doors were closing. And for some people that meant not having a job. And that's a really heavy burden to carry for people that you love so much and have so much respect for. So that was probably one of my 
honestly, probably one of my worst days. Um, and they were so gracious and so kind and responded so amazingly. What can we do? How can we help? You know, can we invest just you name it? And, and every offer came to us and it was, um, really touching and amazing to see kind of just that act of, of support and humanity come from a staff that really worked hard for you. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, I could, I can imagine that's sad. And, and, um, also at the same time, it's, I, I would imagine it was probably overwhelming too. Yeah, it was, it was overwhelming. I got to the point towards the end of having, having the business where I just honestly felt like I was sinking. Like the, the responsibility and the bills and the time and the exhaustion and just, it was one of those things where really like I'm a fairly emotionally and mentally stable person most of the time, but you really kind of start questioning your own stability and your own, like, am I going to crack? Like, can I handle this? And I think I I was close to the point where I, I couldn't have handled it for much longer. And so for me, kind of for my own survival, and I know that sounds really dramatic, but really for my own sanity and my own survival and for me to be any form of mother that I felt I needed to be, it had to close. Now, while the decision to close the shop may seem obvious to you as you listen to this podcast, when you're in the throes of it, your only thoughts are, how do I keep this thing going? And Lisa was no exception. Many of her decisions at this time, as she already stated, were from sheer desperation, trying to keep the shop open and provide for her extended family. I didn't fully understand the depth of her desperation during this time until I commented on her ability to understand herself well enough to know that something had to give. And here's what she had to say about that. Well, I'll tell you, like, honestly, don't give me too much credit there because I, I did. I, I tried. I mean, that's part of the reason why we opened up, uh, you know, additional locations and threw the kitchen sink at it and, you know, really just kind of rated every stockhold and investment and dollar we could get our, our hands on. Um, even when it maybe didn't make logical sense to do so, it was just like that you work so hard for something, you just can't admit that what you've built is, is gone. And for me, that it came at a very heavy price. I ended up, you know, really kind of financially devastated. I ended up divorced, you know, having a business <laughs> with a partner in life and a partner in business really kind of, um, it shines a spotlight on everything maybe that's not right in both areas. And so that it ultimately led to the demise of my marriage and, um, you know, financial ruin. And there, it, it, the decision to close came at a high cost, but I don't, at least, at least there was a bottom. I can only imagine the emotions Lisa must have felt when she hit the metaphorical bottom. The coffee shop is gone. Extended family members are out of work. I found myself thinking, what do you do next? Where does someone go from this point? How do you recover? And then I remembered that during all of this emotional strife, Lisa was still working a full-time day job. Yes, by the grace of God, I still had somehow managed to hang on to that. So that really that really was my lifeline. Um, having that security um, financially and that income kind of let me ride out. The, the devastation of a business failure where most people don't have that luxury. So I'm, I'm very thankful that I was able to maintain that. And honestly, Ryan, I, I kind of took my ball and went home for a while. Like literally it it's, 
it's hard. It, it hits your ego. It hits your heart. It, you know, makes you question what you're worth um, as a person, as an entrepreneur, as a mother. So I just kind of retreated into the safety of the corporate world and was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. Not going to do that again. From the words, it sounded like the experience had changed her, made her believe that maybe the corporate world was her path after all, and that being an entrepreneur might not be for her. So I asked her about it. Yes. Yeah. For several, several, several years, actually, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to stick to this box and I'm going to do, I'm going to check off these, these task lists every days and I'm going to, you know, copy and paste my spreadsheets like a good employee and I'm just going to stay safe and collect a check and, you know, let other, let other people build new things because apparently I'm not meant for that. Clearly the failure of the business had impacted Lisa and her mindset. She decided to take her ball and go back to the quote unquote safety of the corporate world. However, knowing where she is today, I needed to know what was it that made her decide to try being an entrepreneur again? Well, I was really reluctant to ever make that statement because the, the scars last. And, um, failure is a pretty powerful, a pretty powerful force, especially if you don't necessarily process it or frame it in the right light. So for me, it really started more of, I got really bored doing what I was doing every day. I was good at it and I was successful, but I was really bored. And I just felt like more days than not, I logged off at the end of the day and hadn't really helped anyone hadn't created anything, hadn't really broken any new ground. Like I just checked a box and showed up and got paid for attendance. How many of you feel that way? You're good at your job. So good, in fact, that you've become bored. You're not being challenged at work and you feel like you're really not adding any value. Gallup, the company that runs the Strengths Finder test, would probably refer to Lisa as a disengaged employee. So I asked Lisa, if, if you know this about yourself, and you're having these feelings of not adding value, how do you get yourself out of that? Well, it started, you know, innocently enough with just wanting to learn again. Uh, I always enjoyed education. I loved being in college. Um, I loved leading new projects and learning new technology. And I wasn't getting any of that from my workplace. And in honesty, it's really not an employer's job to do that for you, to stimulate you into learning new things. And so I started looking into learning more about people who inspired me and people I saw building things and helping people and really being innovative and putting them themselves out there and just started immersing myself into those communities and taking courses and, and getting connected in, in different communities and interactions and really just challenging myself to see how much I could learn and you know, what I could do with that. Wanting to learn again. This sounds so familiar to Natasha Davis's story from show 56. Natasha, if you'll recall, also felt the same way. She was good at her job, but it wasn't fulfilling her. She needed something else. Once we, you, me, and all of us decide to do that, to take action, to explore and see what else is out there, we almost always will find someone online who's been there and done that. Someone we look up to and can emulate. For me, that person was Pat Flynn. Pat runs a smart passive income blog and podcast. If you've never heard of Pat before or listened to his podcast, I highly recommend that you check him out. I wondered if maybe Lisa had found anyone online as well. And so I asked her if she had discovered anybody that really spoke to her. Yeah, you know, it was kind of an unlikely source of inspiration, but I started really 
paying attention to Shalene Johnson. And I had known of her as a, a fitness personality, really, and for previous years and had done some of her workouts and had, had always known she had just a really kind of special energy about her. But I didn't realize at the time that she was so amazing from a business perspective as far as building tribes and setting goals and executing on plans and getting really laser specific on creating your vision and then aligning that vision or aligning all the steps needed below that vision to, to bring it to reality. So I really got active and started listening to her podcast and watching her videos and engaging in, with her community and her followers on Facebook and Instagram and just really decided that she spoke to me in a way that challenged me, but that I also really related to and respected. So Lisa was learning and immersing herself into Shalene's community and getting some knowledge, as Natasha said, but she also decided to do something that a lot of people won't or don't do. She invested in herself by purchasing an online course. Lisa told me about how that decision came about. I did. I did. Like there's there's definitely, and, and I've kind of studied it and learned it, but I didn't know it at the time. I just you know, played along to this great webinar formula, right? So I clicked on one of her free webinars on Facebook and reserved my seat and sat through what I believe that one was almost two hours long. So the value that she provided in that, and that webinar was nothing, cost me nothing but my time. It, it was free of charge. And throughout that webinar, she provided so much incredible value and so much insight to me that had I hung up when when the pitch started for her program, I would have been much better off than I had been before I started the webinar. So for me, and I did that in different webinars and different formats. I just kind of was a, you know, a creeper in the shadows for a, for a <laughs> while. So I was really kind of skeptical at first. The program I ended up enrolling in was not cheap and I didn't have the money. It was one of those things where I had to mindfully make the decision that A, it provides value, B, that I, I trust the person who's providing it, and C, and that really the hardest one, the one that literally made me like sweat was when I got my credit card out and enrolled in the Smart Success Academy. What was probably one of your biggest takeaways from it? Oh, gosh. It's just the methodology behind that. There were so many, so many great things about it, first of all, um, one of which was the community, just the support, the accessibility to Shalene and her husband, Brett, and the team. You know, it, from a business perspective, it's really more than I learned in a master's program at a university. Um, and from a relevancy standpoint of how do you reach the market today? How do you leverage social media? How do you leverage branding? How do you leverage systems? How do you make all of these things work to move you forward? Um, so that was really practical and, and everything I learned from her was immediately applicable. But you still had to do the work. The course was set up in a way where she would cover a small segment of information and then it was on you. Like you got your workbook out. You got, you know, you got your notebook out. You did the work. It had to be something that you actively engaged with to have any real value. But I went all in. I did the work and it was really, really paramount in helping me realize that I needed to create something. And I had the tools then when I landed on my passion and my point of impact to actually put a framework around it. So I think you'll agree, at this point, Lisa is starting to feel confident again. 
She has a framework for success and the tools now to make it happen. But what she doesn't have is a thing to apply it to. And I think many of us get to this point. We struggle with what we want to do next or how to apply our skills in a meaningful manner. And so, hoping for a magic bullet, I asked Lisa, how did she determine what her thing is? I didn't for the longest time, and it was so frustrating because I'm like, here, I have all these great tools and these great plans and the structure, and what am I doing? Like, what am I building? Where, what is my impact? And it was really kind of a frustrating, but I, I kept plugging things in and kind of road testing them to see, you know, it was like the three little bears, like too big or too small and just right. And it took me a long time to land on what I felt aligned with my passions, uh, which ultimately was, was body language training. Plugging things in and road testing them. This, I think, is an important distinction and a defining characteristic, not just for Lisa, but for other entrepreneurs that I've spoken with. She kept trying new things in search of that one something that she can apply her newfound skills to in order to be able to contribute in a more meaningful way. I asked Lisa if she felt the entrepreneurial spirit starting to come back at this point. Yeah, well, I don't think the entrepreneurial spirit ever really went away. I think I just locked it in a room for a while because I didn't want to listen to it. (laughs) Once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, huh? You know, I think there's some truth to that. I think people can grow to appreciate it, but I think it's either something you, you really have a passion for or is just really not something you're comfortable with. Um, I think you can learn how to execute on it, but ultimately the passion has to be there because I don't care what industry and what format your entrepreneur journey takes. It's hard. And if you don't have the passion behind it, you're not going to last long. So for me, it really helped me realize like it was time to quit being complacent. I felt really convicted kind of in my spirit that I was expected to have a higher point of impact. And I was expected, I've been given a certain gifts and and I'm in a certain area and space right now in this time because I have something that someone else needs that is uniquely mine. And it's my obligation to discover that and then share that. So that kind of sent me down, you know, what is, you know, what's my purpose? What's my calling? What's my gift? How can I have my highest point of impact? This is something I've heard a lot. Pat Flynn was the first person I heard it from. We all have gifts, something that is uniquely ours and that someone else needs. Once we discover what that something is, it becomes our obligation to share it. Because if we don't, we're really doing a disservice to ourselves and to others. Lisa clearly had this part figured out, but she was still searching for what that something might be. So I asked her, how did she go from searching to discovering? I had an opportunity to kind of exit uh, my corporate job gracefully in the end of 2014. And I, I had already been laying the framework to exit with nothing. So to be able to do so and, and have a, a little bit of a severance package to cushion the landing was, was something I just knew was intrinsically the right decision to make. So I actually left my company with no backup plan. <laughs> I didn't have another job lined up. I knew I was going to build something and that that was my shove off the cliff to go build something and get serious about discovering what it was I was supposed to build. There are so many things happening here. Lisa has now decided to dive in, this time with no backup plan. We could debate all day the merits of this decision, but for Lisa, it was the right decision. The severance package, in addition to coming at the right time, just happened to serve as the push off the cliff that she needed to go find her thing. Everything that is happening to Lisa at this point, the decision to start following Shalene, to invest in herself through an online course, 
Even her day job not being challenging enough and the severance package all remind me of a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Once you make a decision, the universe conspires to make it happen. I can see this quote playing out in vivid color at this point in Lisa's story. And this trend continues as she now decides to attend a local conference called Fail Fast. Turns out this would be a pivotal decision for her. Well, I had an, an interesting encounter with um, a serial entrepreneur at an event called Fail Fast, and his failure story and just how candid and raw he was with it really kind of spoke to me. And I reached out to him on LinkedIn and just kind of shared my my appreciation for him sharing his story. And we realized we knew each other from years and years ago, and we reconnected. And I got to learn about his business, which was really ironically focused on empowering and educating entrepreneurs in the startup space specifically. Intrigued. I wanted to learn more about the conference. I think Lisa said it was a conference, right? Yeah, it was a conference. It was a full day event. They had 20 different speakers that are now currently viewed as very successful, but they got to kind of unpack a little bit of their journey and share the things that went wrong before things started going right. And to just kind of reframe the the conversation around failure and innovation to kind of take the stigma away from it. I mean, I know firsthand how you're viewed when you fail, but it was really kind of a great event to help people see that failure is is necessary for innovation and for progress. And that message was one I really needed to hear. And uh, it just kind of came at the exact right time for me. Follow me here. Lisa decides to attend a conference where she hears a man speak on his business failures. She then decides to reach out to him via LinkedIn, not to ask for anything, but to tell him how much his message resonated with her. Turns out they both know each other from past lives. We truly do live in a small world. And as they reconnected, Lisa learned about his business, which was about empowering and educating entrepreneurs in the startup space. Do you see the universe coming together here? Sensing something in her voice, I asked Lisa if this gentleman kind of became a mentor for her after that conference event. Absolutely. Yeah, he was he was really instrumental in kind of emboldening me to get back into entrepreneurship and kind of building something. He had had recently founded another tech company, but a a previous project of his that he had um, had kind of been put on the shelf just because, you know, all all hands on deck for the new company. And he basically gave me the opportunity to take this idea and this service that he had created and make it work. And so what was this project that you took over? It's called Startup Land. And it started as a documentary series to chronicle the journey of five tech startup founders as they went through an accelerator. So what does that look like? What does it feel like? Um, What does it require of you? And what's the impact on your family? Uh, Just really a real life nitty gritty picture of what it looks and feels like to be in the startup space. This is my first foray into kind of the entrepreneurial world. But until you actually take that plunge, you don't realize whatever you assume, it's 10 times tougher than that. 15 years ago, everybody wanted to be Bill Gates. Now they all want to be Mark Zuckerberg. And the reality is running a company is not that easy and it's often not that fun. Just as Lisa described it, Startup Land is a documentary film founded by Jonathan Pirelli. It follows five startup CEOs on their journey through a 12-week tech accelerator. The film captures the highs and lows of their experiences, including the nitty-gritty stuff that is often never seen by the public. 
Startup Land is also a six-part documentary series, an online learning platform, and a social innovation program with workshops. You can learn more at startupland.tv. So Lisa begins working on the Startup Land project, and for some reason, I was curious to know if this was a paid position. Remember, she jumped off the cliff this time with no backup plan and only had a severance package to sustain her. This was kind of, you know, your your reward is what you create, and, and basically compensation was, I joke now that it was a really expensive internship for me, <laughs> but oh my gosh, did I learn a lot. And, and I don't say that sarcastically because the knowledge I gleaned from being part of that project, the exposure I got to how the tech scene works and the connections and introductions I got and the people that are now part of my daily life would have never happened had I not been part of that project. Um, that's really where I first noticed how necessary some positive coaching was for really brilliant tech entrepreneurs that were trying to get investors and team members to understand and believe in their products, but really were amazing creative people, but didn't know how to communicate effectively what their vision and product was. Watching a hundred people pitch for 60 seconds a piece reinforced almost a hundred times that the need for good pitch coaching and how to, how to deliver a compelling story in an impactful way needed to be at the beginning of my list of things that I could impact. And that's really when I decided it was time to get serious about looking at being a body language trainer and a nonverbal skills coach. If you remember back to my interview with Dory Clark, She noted way back then that one way to gain skills or experiences is to take on an internship for all of the very same reasons that Lisa spoke about. But even better than the experience, which I'm not discounting at all, Lisa was also changing her circles. She was surrounding herself with people who could help take her to where she was starting to begin to learn that she wanted to be. You see, she was starting to zero in on what her thing might look like which became very clear to her after watching several entrepreneurs pitch their products or services. I asked her if she remembered the aha moment or the experience that led her to consider becoming a pitch coach. Well, it was really, there was, there was one um, entrepreneur in particular that pitched at an event called Innovation Showcase. And the room is filled with about a thousand people. Um, and they get 60 seconds to come up and tell people on why you should be interested to learn more about this amazing thing they've created. And this person was so brilliant. And the product really has wide reaching positive impact, like kind of a game changer. And the pitch was so uncomfortable and so ineffective and so lackluster that the brilliance of the product was lost in the delivery. And I just thought, how sad is it that this person is probably not going to get the attention or investment or key team members that they need simply because they didn't know how to effectively deliver a pitch and capture the audience. Pitch decks are table stakes. In order for a founder to really stand out of the crowd, they've got to actually be able to communicate and inspire. So how do you make the leap from watching people make poor pitches as a part of the responsibilities with Startup Plan to founding a company, PowerBodyLanguage.com? Well, getting my body language certification was actually part of a a strategic plan to add pitch coaching and presentation coaching to the startup land suite of products because it falls so clearly in line with empowering and educating entrepreneurs. 
that was a picture that I had in my head when I pursued this training. But what I found was when I got into the certification program and we're working with about 20 other trainers, one of them is a facial surgeon in New York, and one of them is a special education teacher in Switzerland, and one of them is a professional photographer. Like everyone from across the board of applications were all coming to learn the same set of skills and then apply them specifically to their areas of interest. So that really started to broaden my view on, you know, this is going to be really helpful for coaching entrepreneurs, but it can have a lot of impact in many different areas. As Lisa and I spoke, both during this interview and before I hit the record button, I was really starting to see the value in understanding the power of body language. But I was very curious to understand how Lisa even found out about the discipline in the first place. Well, it's it, it was really kind of introduced to me on that initial journey of, of wanting to educate myself and re-engage my brain a little bit. So I had listened to a podcast with uh, Shalene Johnson, and she had Vanessa Van Edwards as the lead um, behavioral investigator at the Science of People. So I, I went on her website, not even really looking to be a trainer at that point, just totally fascinated. So we've come full circle. Lisa has positioned herself through action and decisions that she's made to find herself in this place where people really need help and an area where she feels very compelled to be in and in which she knows she could add value. Once in this place, she's able to start putting to use the knowledge and the skills that she has gained and acquired through her past actions As she was re-engaging her brain, her words, not mine, she remembered a podcast she had listened to during that time when she was gaining some knowledge. So you see, podcasts are indeed useful, but I digress. For those who don't understand or may not be clear on what power body language means, don't worry, I asked Lisa to describe what it is that she does in her business on a daily basis. Sure. Well, power body language is my coaching and consulting business. What I focus on primarily is empowering people, specifically women, and communicating with confidence, increasing their influence, and negotiating with results. That's accomplished by sharing, you know, sharing my cape is what I call it. Like, I feel like I I honestly truly believe and feel like I have learned how to master a superpower. Everyone is born with the power of body language and can strengthen that and train that and grow that like any other muscle if you know how to do it in a targeted and strategic way. So how do people even know that they need to develop the skill? A lot of my clients come to me because they've been given feedback that maybe wasn't positive. Um, In a professional environment, for instance, I had someone who I worked with that was given feedback that she was a little too transparent in her reaction, her negative reactions to management direction. There was just something that she, some signal that she was sending out in some way that she was conveying the message that she was not in agreement with them. So for her, it was as important to kind of decode body language and nonverbal skills as it was to learn how to utilize body language and nonverbal skills. Let that sink in for a minute. The way this person was communicating via her body was giving off a bad vibe that others noticed, yet she herself didn't recognize at all. And why is that? Because it was a natural tendency for her. And the only way to change natural tendencies is to know that you're doing them and under what circumstances you exhibit them. I find this fascinating. Fortunately, Lisa does too. And I wanted to know if we could demonstrate the power of body language over an audio medium like a podcast. 
Turns out you can. And so I asked Lisa to help us understand the importance of a handshake. Well, the hands in general are the the primary trust indicator for people. And it's people argue with me about this all the time. And when I ask them, what's the first thing that you look at when you approach someone or when someone's approaching you, they'll say, oh, the eyes or the smile or how they're walking. But but eye tracking studies have shown that the first thing they look at when they are interacting with someone is their hands. And that's kind of like a caveman brain thing. We developed long ago when you, you know, you were Mr. Caveman and a, a stranger caveman approached you. If you could see his hands, chances are when you're making that split decision of, of friend or foe, you would know they weren't a threat. If you couldn't see someone's hands, then the assumption is in your brain that they're a threat or they're withholding something or they could possibly do you harm. Just that split second recognition of where are their hands? What are they doing? Can I see them? Can I trust them? I don't know about you, but I do it. If you and I were going to meet for the first time, as we started to approach each other, I will look at your hands to see if you're going to extend your hand first or if I'm going to have to do it. Yes. And and following that then also is how to really maximize and utilize the power of a handshake. So when two people touch, they create oxytocin. And oxytocin, you may have heard it referred to as the cuddle hormone. So what's responsible for that feeling of, hey, I... I'm with you. I trust you. It really is key in any type of situation where you're trying to gain trust or setting the stage for negotiations or really trying to get someone to know that that you're present and with them. A good handshake is equivalent to three hours of face-to-face time with someone. So if you can nail that initial handshake, and there's a formula to it, I'll tell you about in a minute, but if you can nail that initial handshake, you're already three hours down the road relationally. The equivalent of three hours of face-to-face time just for a good handshake. Wow. My grandfather's advice to me on handshakes was always, if you're shaking someone's hand, make sure they know that you're shaking their hand. Not in a break-their-bones kind of way, mind you, but in a firm, glad-to-meet-you kind of way. He was always very suspicious of anyone with a wet fish or limp handshake. And it turns out for good reason. Yeah, there's nothing worse than a limp handshake. Like, honestly, it's so off-putting. There, there's no easier way to crush someone's expectations of you than if, you, if you're like their hero and you give them a, a limp handshake. It's game over. Like, the perception of you is forever changed. I totally agree with Lisa on this point. I don't like limp handshakes. To me, it says, I'm only doing this because it's expected. But frankly, I'd rather be meeting someone else. So if you have a limp handshake, start working on fixing that today. So what is the secret to a good handshake? It's got to lie somewhere between the limp, wet fish and the potentially bone-crushing handshake of the mountain from the Game of Thrones. Knowing this, I asked Lisa, what makes a good handshake? So here's, here's the secret sauce. Here's the formula for the perfect handshake. First, it should always be vertical. So I don't know if you've ever shook hands with someone, but they flip your hand up or down or change the position. They don't keep it vertical. In many cases, it could be completely innocent. 
But in some cases, people will strategically twist the handshake so your wrist is exposed or facing up. That's a a subtle form of them asserting dominance or establishing kind of their authority over you by, by exposing your wrist. Do they do that on purpose or is it just like something that's ingrained in them? Sometimes. Sometimes they were given bad advice by someone about how to shake hands and just never really realized it's, it's disrespectful to flip someone's wrist or to put them in a position of subordination. Sometimes it's very, very strategic. If you watch news clips or um, video, especially when when there are two very powerful players and they're shaking hands, you will see the, the double handshake where one of them or both of them will immediately kind of double over their handshake with the other hand. Um, you will see it almost gets to the point, you know, when you put your hands in the middle and then just kind of keep putting your hands on top of each other to get to have someone on top. It kind of gets ridiculous. Like there's some amazing examples that we have, some, some file footage that really shows how ridiculous handshakes can get when there's a lot of ego involved. I'm, I'm thinking of the Three Stooges type stuff now. It's, it's almost like that, only they're like literally like presidents of countries. It gets a little crazy, but (laughs) okay. So you want to keep it vertical. You want to keep it firm, but not too firm. So you want, you want to be firm enough that you're clearly engaged in the handshake. So you want it to be kind of a concerted effort that you're applying pressure or, or engaging in the handshake, but you don't want to crush anybody's hand. You aren't there to arm wrestle anybody or, you know, to prove that you won a strongman contest. Like you're there to acknowledge someone and show them a respectful greeting. And then the third, and probably in, in my opinion, the most important component of a good handshake is it's got to be dry. Vertical. I had no idea. But now I'm going to be paying attention. As for a dry handshake, well, I think I understand, but rather than assume, I decided to ask Lisa to explain what she meant by a dry handshake. Well, there's there's a number of reasons why things can be uncomfortably soggy. And, and one may be that someone is nervous or sweaty palms. I don't know. There's certain medical conditions that contribute to that at some time. But if you shake someone's hand and it's all clammy or all sweaty, it just it kind of like stays with you and kind of just gives you that auto reply of, ugh. Uncomfortably soggy. Two words that I would never have associated with a handshake, and frankly, two words that I won't soon forget. How about handshakes, though, in the winter months when it's cold? Personally, my hands have a tendency to be cold more often than not. Should I apologize for my hands being cold? No, I don't. I think a big part of nonverbal and body language skill is recognizing context. Okay. So if it's Indiana in winter and there's snow on the ground, a cold hand is not to be unexpected. Okay. Um, you can make a joke about it. Oh, sorry, my hands are always like ice cubes. You know, it kind of depends on your relationship and how formal you are with that person. But it's sometimes a little joke helps break the ice and, you know, it's, it's no harm, no foul. But where people um, can kind of help themselves with this as well is if you're at, for instance, a networking event, don't hold your drink in the hand that you shake with. First of all, you have kind of that awkward shuffle transition And secondly, it's a lot of times your bottle or your glass is going to have some moisture on your hand. So it's better to either wrap a napkin around it or to hold it in your other hand. Or if worse comes to worse and you know your your hand is wet for whatever reason, just be as obvious as to swipe your hand down the leg of your pants. Do the person a favor. They would rather have that than to be hit with the soggy hand. Yeah, I'm going to have to teach myself how to drink with my left hand. (laughs) (laughs) You can have, you can drink with your right hand. Just have a napkin between your hand and the cup. Ah, okay. I do that. I do that anyway, but I do it 
because I don't want my hand to get cold. <laughs> right. Well, and that's kind of a good strategy too. If you know, you just kind of naturally have sweaty hands, having a napkin around your drink or your, you know, your cup or bottle is not anything that people would be suspicious of, but it can kind of help keep your palm dry for that handshake, especially if you're going to be doing a lot of it through the course of a networking event or a meet and greet. Now, I can only speak for myself here, but I find the power of body language and nonverbal communication fascinating. What about you? Are you interested in learning other nonverbal forms of communication? If so, you can get in touch with Lisa in the following ways. The best ways to get in touch with me are through email. It's just lisa at powerbodylanguage.com or follow me on Twitter at powernonverbals or my website is powerbodylanguage.com. I think you'll agree, Lisa's journey to this point has been pretty incredible, and it's filled with lessons for us all. Chief among them, in my mind, is to go out and, as Lisa said earlier, try stuff. See what fits. Some things will work, and some things won't. And that's okay. It's part of the process of becoming a brand new you. I asked Lisa, with all of her experiences, what tips or advice would she like to leave us with today? Be brave. I think that applies to both utilizing your body language and entering entrepreneurship. Just be brave. It's scary stuff, but uh, the, the reward is great. The universe conspires to make it happen. I saw evidence of this all throughout my discussion with Lisa. I also saw evidence of a true entrepreneur with all the toughness and persistence you would expect. Thank you, Lisa, for being a guest on the show today and for sharing your career journey with us. For all of you listening, a heartfelt thank you to you. I greatly appreciate you loading up this show on your favorite podcatcher this week and every week. And if you enjoy the show, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes. This helps raise the visibility of the show, which means we can get the words of our guests out to a broader audience each and every week. And you know there are people out there who need to know how to give a good handshake. If you have any specific questions about body language or nonverbal skills, let's carry the conversation over to Facebook. You can find the show page at facebook.com forward slash brand new you podcasts. There you can leave your comments and questions and Lisa and I will be happy to answer them for you. That wraps us up for today. The show notes can be found on the website at ryanroten.com forward slash Lisa Mitchell. Until next week, I've been Ryan and I'm out. Today's show was edited and produced by Ryan Roten, and the intro and outro music is Pulse by Soundro. A special word of thanks goes out to Jonathan Pirelli for permission to use the audio clips from the Startup Land introductory video featured in today's show. You can find the video and all the information about Startup Land at startupland.com.